Hello and welcome to Borderlines. Today's episode is the first in what I hope will be several in which we interview previous Canadian immigration ministers. Today we are interviewing John McCallum, who is the Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada from November 5, 2015 to January 10, 2017. He was the first immigration minister under Justin Trudeau's government when Prime Minister Trudeau was first elected in 2015 after a decade of conservative rule under former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Now, during Mr. McCallum's time as immigration minister, he oversaw the resettlement of around 40,000 refugees in Canada, removed the ability of the state to revoke Canadian citizenship of certain dual nationals convicted of serious crimes, and changed the time that is required to be a Canadian citizen from four years out of six as a permanent resident to three years out of five as a permanent resident with up to one year of time uh, when someone was a temporary resident counting towards citizenship requirements as well. Mr. McCallum also abolished the intention to reside in Canada as being a requirement for Canadian citizenship. He repealed conditional permanent residency for sponsored spouse in which people who were in new marriages or common law relationships at the time that they applied for permanent residence became a conditional permanent resident, such that if the relationship ended, they could be removed from Canada. He also increased the age of dependency in an immigration application from the age of 18 to 22. So in other words, uh, whereas before, or sorry, from 19 to 22, meaning that uh, people who are essentially of school age, an uh, undergrad age, could now immigrate to Canada as part of their parents' application. He also doubled the number of parents and grandparents who applied for permanent residency and a whole host of other measures that we discuss in this interview. A few quick things. First, over the years, I've been asked why I don't post episodes to YouTube. And I've now finally set up a channel and will be posting old episodes uh, over time. I've decided that in order for it to not be purely audio, I'll go and add some slides to the episodes to accompany the audio. And so old episodes will be posted over time and I'll post a link to the YouTube channel in the show notes today. Second, if you have any comments or suggestions, please feel free to email me at stephen.murins at larley.com. S-T-E-V-E-N dot M-E-U-R-R-E-N-S at larley.com, L-A-R-L-E-E dot C-O-M. And I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Borderlines, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration, border and refugee related issues. I'm Steve Murins. I'm joined today remotely by Skype by Diana Okanachoff, my co-host, and we are extremely 
I'm grateful and pleased today to have uh, a former Canadian immigration minister on the podcast, John McCallum. Um, Mr. McCallum was Canada's Minister of Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship from November 4, 2015 to January 10, 2017. So he was the first Minister of Immigration under the Trudeau government. Prior to that, he had served as immigration critic for several years, and he previously also served in numerous cabinet positions under both Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin. He was the defense minister, the veterans affairs minister, the revenue minister, and I think also the natural resources minister. Um, so we are extremely, uh, you know, joyed that uh, you could join us today. Thanks for coming on. Well, thank you. Great pleasure to be with you. Yeah. So why don't we uh, leap right into the first uh, topic that I think we wanted to discuss? And I think it would probably be what your legacy will be as immigration minister. I'm not sure if you agree or not that it would be your legacy, but that would be the uh, Syrian refugee resettlement um, of was it it was a commitment to 25,000 people but I think there were more than that who were ultimately resettled yes I would certainly agree it was the most important thing I did in my time at immigration and the commitment was to 25,000 Syrian refugees by I think I remember because it was a leap year. The deadline was February 29th of uh, 2016. And I think but the numbers after, so we hit the target of 25,000 by that date. And I think subsequently the number rose to be about maybe 40,000. And when the, the number itself, I think, came up, about during the uh, 2015 campaign. So what goes into like going from a very small number of refugees to 40,000 refugees? Like what is the logistics on the ground that you had to coordinate? Well, a huge amount of work because it was not only a substantial number, 25,000 initially, but it was also had to be done very fast. And it also had to be done right. I used to say it's more important to get it right than to do it fast. But, for example, we had every single one of those refugees was checked on the ground at, at in Jordan or in Lebanon for security and for health. And that's a huge logistical operation to get all the people to do that checking out to those countries. We were fortunate we had uh, the military helping us on the health side. And I would say there was a huge effort across the whole government where people were enthused with this idea. They volunteered to go out. And so we had an enormous amount of enthusiasm and so many people helped in one way or another uh, to make this happen because I think and, and I was extremely happy that Canadians were so positive about it because yeah. remember, we were, this was a time when a lot of countries were opposed to refugees, where there was 
Donald Trump had just arrived in the United States and there was a lot of angst in Europe. And so we were concerned from the start to try to make sure that Canadians would support this. And I'm very pleased that Canadians did support it. But I think one of the reasons that they supported it is that we were able to honestly say that we were covering off the security and health angles. And we had senior security people, I think the head of the RCMP or CSIS or both, attesting to the efficacy of this process. And so I think that also provided some comfort for Canadians. But, you know, we had Canadians of all kinds helping. Um, we had the then Governor General was really keen. He hosted a big conference. We had the business community on side. They contributed quite a lot of money, especially I remember CN. And we had we needed to get the provinces to agree and they oversubscribed. The amounts that the provinces um, volunteered to take added up to more than the 25,000. And so they were all very keen. Uh, I remember especially the maritime provinces that, uh, were very keen, but all of them were. And so, uh, you know, we worked very well with the, uh, the provinces and the people on the ground. Canada, I think, has one of the best networks for receiving and settling people. Uh, but they had to work overtime, to put it mildly, and they were yeah. super stretched. But they delivered, you know, because when you have all these people arriving, and if it's the government-funded refugees, you have to also decide where they all go. And so that was also an enormous logistical uh, challenge to make sure they went to appropriate places. Um, so it wasn't perfect, but I think it all on, on balance went uh, extremely well. So I was uh, very pleased with the result. I presume that the primary driver behind this will alleviate the humanitarian crisis. But I've also always wondered whether there was a secondary purpose, which was to communicate something to the Canadian people. And from what you've said, it seems like this was part of an expression of what the political mandate of, of the Trudeau was. I'm just interested in hearing your thoughts about that. Well, I think that's true. I think we as a government were very open to accepting refugees uh, as evidenced by what we did and the previous government was less so. Mm -hmm. And so I think we wanted to communicate this idea as an important priority to Canadians. And I remember this was just a few, a month or so after the government had changed hands. So the mm -hmm. civil servants were used to dealing with the Harper government. And I remember when I went over to Jordan and then subsequently to Lebanon, I had to tell the civil servants 10 times that we wanted maximum media, not minimum media, because they were so used to shutting down all the media. But the purpose of going to Jordan and going to Lebanon, and once it was with Jane Philpott and, and uh, the defense minister, the three of us, um, 
was to communicate what we were doing to Canadians and to show Canadians on the ground what was happening and why this was important and why this was needed and so on. So the civil servants, you know, they delivered in the end, but they were used to a different regime in which the idea was to minimize media. And uh, in our case, we wanted the opposite. So, yeah, I think it was we did it because we thought it was the right thing to do. And in the meantime, we also wanted to convince Canadians and demonstrate to Canadians that this was the right thing to do. And be safe, as you've indicated already. When Justin Trudeau met the first arrivals, that, you know, created a media storm around the world. So I I think it was largely for the substance of it, but the communication was also important. And so was this something where uh, you mentioned that the bureaucracy was used to doing things one way and now it had to uh, act? in a different and in this case very ambitious way where did you experience a lot of this can't be done sentiment that you had to overcome initially before i became minister in the transition period they had problems with the department because basically they said it couldn't be done but then quickly they became aware that it had And so once that happened and they rolled up their sleeves to get the job done, they were really good. I mean, there was some hesitation. This was something completely different from anything they'd ever done. And I guess they honestly felt it was impossible. But it was possible because we did it. And uh, so I don't complain about the department. You asked me the question and I'm saying, yes, at the very beginning, there was and disbelief that it was possible. But once they got over that, they put everything into it. And as I said, you had people from all over Canada, all over the world, volunteering to participate and to work in this area. And the senior people also were very much positive and helpful in making it work. Yeah. No, I had uh, several groups of friends that got together in groups of to sponsor refugees and it was very neat how that seemed to almost bring the country together. And yeah, it was just very unique. Like it's not often that people get together to sponsor refugees. Mm-hmm. And well, going back to the, that hesitation, is it something that you think like you were uniquely able to help push given your past cabinet experience, including in defense? Oh, I don't know. I, I wouldn't give myself too much credit. I think that... <laughs> They were told, because this was the government, that you just have to do it. And I think they got that message before I was named the minister. But once I became the minister, I was certainly very much pushing for it to be done. And I didn't encounter much resistance. But I guess my previous experience may have been helpful. The other thing that might have been helpful was that it was so early in the life of the government that I had more of a free reign than many ministers would have. Because yeah. people hadn't really gotten there yet. And so I was much more free to do what I thought was right. I did have very good advice. From people, but it was, um, it was more of a sense of freedom that I had than I think I might have had it been a little bit further into the future. Yeah. Um, 
I'll my tell you. experience in that I was yeah. the year before you became the minister, I was chairing the Canadian Bar Association's immigration section. And we certainly, and I know from our, our members at the time that what you referenced about the reluctance to participate in media, that was something that we certainly experienced. Also, there was a real reluctance to communicate with members of the immigration bar, and that was something that we really experienced as well. And so I can imagine what you've talked about, this kind of change management that you experienced entering the department when there was such a cultural shift that it was apparent on various fronts, not just in terms of the approach to media, but just in terms of you know, a change of culture that happened at this time. Um, I, I'm sure that, you know, even if um, very good people are working, just trying to to um, usher in a new era where it's a very different philosophy is often a, a big challenge, especially around such a big enterprise like what you've talked about um, around the, the resettlement of such a big group of people. Yeah, well, I think across the government, this was... Uh, change in approach. And I think in foreign affairs as well, ambassadors previously were not allowed to talk to media and that changed, but they got used to a certain way of doing things. And I guess you don't just wake up one morning and completely switch. It takes a while to get used yeah. to it. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm, I'm, that's why I asked the first question that I did about um, the nature of this type of an initiative is that it was such a strong message that helped to really mobilize people around such a passion project that I feel like um, it just seemed to me something really quite calculated. And of course, as I say, I think that it was very much driven by the humanitarian mandate, but it also seemed to work really perfectly to get everyone kind of united behind such a passion project um, and helped kind of cut through some of those change management strategies that would have otherwise, you know, to do it around LMIAs wouldn't have kind of done the same thing. Um, uh, I, that's right. Now, I don't want to claim too much for myself. I was not involved in formulating the initial target during the election. So that was part of the election campaign. And as in all elections campaigns, it's part of the motive was to help get liberals elected. And the idea that this would be something that would appeal to Canadians and was rather different from the conservative approach. So I was not really involved in that phase of it, but I'm sure that that calculation went into people's minds that it was, first of all, the right thing to do, but also something that would demonstrate to Canadians the different path that we were on. And then once we were elected, uh, it was up to me and others to make it happen. Yeah. Be that as it may, I don't remember that this was the most popular part of the Trudeau mandate. I think um, perhaps the idea of opening Canada's doors to refugees wasn't the part of his platform that got him elected, if I'm not mistaken. Steve, perhaps you'll recall that, but I think that that was kind of the more controversial component of his campaign. And my recollection was, you know, you got us, you elected us, and now this is what we're going to do regardless, 
you know, um, this was part of our platform and this is something we're doing because it's right, not because it's necessarily popular. Yeah, I remember, I mean, it was part of a very broad hope and change kind of mandate that mm -hmm. or perception that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau was running on in 2015. And it was, I there were just different numbers that each political party was putting out regarding um, how many Syrians they would take. And I, I mean, a combination, I think, of the Syrian refugee resettlement and maybe the legalization of marijuana and climate change were the three issues that I remember from the 2015 election. Um, you'd mentioned that uh, kind of your role as minister and where decisions get made. And now you had a little more freedom at the start. And that kind of segues into a, another topic I wanted to ask about, which was immigration is an area that's divided amongst yourself as immigration minister, public safety and emergency preparedness, uh, which I think was Ralph Goodale at CBSA and then uh, employment and social development with regards to LMIAs. And I can't recall who was minister of that department at the time that you were, but what is the interplay like uh, between yourself and those two other ministries when it comes to immigration decisions? Okay, before I get into that, let me just say one last thing about the Syrian refugees. Um, I've been talking about how great a success it was, and I think overall it was. But there was one thing we didn't do very well. After the we'd met our deadline, we closed the facilities down in, in uh, Lebanon and Jordan too quickly. And so as a result, we didn't have the capacity to continue to bring in large numbers of refugees quickly enough. And so there was still a lot of privately sponsored refugees waiting for their people. And we took, we were too slow in delivering on that. And so I got some criticism for that. So I sometimes used to say that I'm probably the only immigration minister in the world whose main <laughs> criticism is that I can't let the refugees in quickly enough. Yeah. It's a good kind of a problem to have, but it was still a problem after we uh, achieved the main objective. Um, so that's just to give you a little balance. Not everything went perfectly, but I think on balance it all went very well. Yeah. On other question. Um, well, look, I uh, I have known Ralph Goodale for many years, and uh, my staff uh, knew and got along well with his staff. So I don't think we had big problems there. I think in theory there can be because you know, CBSA is sort of like the, the bad cop and we're like the good cop. And so <laughs> yeah. there's potential for disagreement and I'm sure some disagreements arose, but I think um, it it went quite well. I don't remember there being big issues of contentions or of problems in that area. On the other one, the issue was temporary foreign workers and um, he wanted to let in not unlimited numbers, but significant numbers because there was a great need for them in agriculture and in, in the seafood industry and so on. 
and there was a lot of uh, pressure and need for such people. But we needed to get the employment ministry's agreement, and they had a somewhat different attitude than we did in the sense of being much stricter on making sure that there were no Canadians who wanted the jobs. Now, I agreed we should make sure that no Canadians were available for those jobs, but generally speaking, that was the case. But they would go through a much longer process to make sure that that was the case than we would have uh, chosen. So there was some friction between us in terms of how many and at what speed we'd let these uh, temporary foreign workers into the country. So is it a case where then like the ESDC minister has final stay over anything under their ministry and you would have final say over immigration and Ralph Goodell would have final say over CBSA or is there, if there's a dispute, was there like, I don't, maybe do you go to PMO for an ultimate resolution or is it the ministers had to work amongst themselves? Well, it's, it's quite fluid. One would hope yeah. that would not need to go to PMO, that you could work it out between yourselves. And I think certainly between Ralph Goodell and me, I'm pretty sure we never had to go elsewhere to get anybody to be an arbitrator. Yeah. In, the case, in the other case, though, there was more contention. And I don't remember exactly now, but I think we might have gone to PMO or PMO would have become engaged because there was this we were kind of at loggerheads at one point. And yeah. so probably, I imagine PMO became engaged. I don't remember the details of it, but that's kind of the way it, the way it works. I remember attending meetings with both ministries at that time on the question of temporary foreign workers and feeling like the messaging from the two departments was very difficult to reconcile for that period of time. Um, it did feel like uh, like there was a disconnect between the two departments um, with a real resistance on the side of ESDC, at least in the early days of, of that um, administration to accept the idea of temporary foreign workers being necessary to run the Canadian economy. I agree. Do <laughs> <laughs> you think it makes sense that they're in separate ministries or should it all be brought under one umbrella of immigration? Oh, I don't know. I mean, as the immigration minister, I guess I would have liked <laughs> have had more control over that about what this other minister said but in terms of the structure of government and um i can't really make a comment i think as long as you have a mechanism so that you can basically get along and come to an agreement or somehow resolve these issues i think it's okay yeah. because you have one ministry deciding everything each department has its own specialization maybe you could amalgamate certain things uh i must confess i haven't given a great deal of thought to that yeah the um, thing that was arising at that time for the um esdc minister was just trying to wear two hats as the department that deals with um, employment insurance and the department that deals with temporary foreign workers. And it was, there seemed to be this notion that 
because employment insurance was like kind of the primary mandate that the temporary foreign worker program felt like a distraction to that particular minister. That was at least the feedback we got quite directly at that time. Well, look, I can't really comment much more on this. I, that of may course. well have been the case. All I know is that there were certain frictions at the time. Yeah. And as far as other um, accomplishments as immigration minister, I think uh, in addition to the refugee resettlement, oh, there's a bunch. Um, one of them that uh, I think you wanted to uh, talk about was the reduction in the waiting time or processing time, I guess you could say, for spousal sponsorship applications. What actually goes into achieving that reduction in processing time? Okay. I think it's a question that people generally have hates processing times. Well, the amount of, of, of staff one has to devote to it, the, the, the amount of time it takes for each case to be considered, whether the applicants provide all the information, et cetera, et cetera. But I was, I mean, I'm always trying, as minister, I was always trying to reduce processing times. But the one that stuck out to me like a sore thumb was that it takes two years to process someone who's already married to a Canadian. And that struck me as crazy long. And so I made it a priority to get that down from two years to something much less. And we settled on one year. And within a certain period of time, they'd gotten it down to one year. One year is still a bit long, I think, but it's better than two years. Um, and, you know, I think my the way I handle these things is I tell the department that I really want to get this done. And then I, I have numerical targets over a, set, a fixed period of time to make sure that it is done. And so there may be some resistance in some areas, and you can't be completely unrealistic and crazy about it. But I think in the end, they agreed that to get the time from two years to one year was doable over a period of time. And so we set uh, targets of certain dates when we'd reach certain objectives and get to the one-year target before too long. Now, of course, there are marriages of fake marriages, and so those have to be checked. But I just didn't think it took, it should take two years. Yeah. And so that was something that we achieved. There were still long processing times for various things. You can't really change everything right away. And... Um, that was one uh, success we had. And when, like, sometimes I wonder when I see, okay, there's a commitment to reduce processing times in one area, does that mean there's going to be an increase in another area? Or are there ways that you can <coughs> reduce processing times in program A without seeing an increase in program A? Well, you're right, that's a risk. I don't think, I hope that did not happen in this case. I think they figured out ways of reducing the amount of time required or the processes required for each applicant. So yeah. it, 
mean they needed twice as many people to work on the cases in order to get it done twice fast. It meant that they changed how they did it so that it didn't take so long for each person. So, I mean, naturally, they're always also concerned about program integrity, that you don't have the wrong people in. So you have to balance that against the desire to have a program that is speedy. And I think they did a good job from the best I know. They found method changes in their method, which would make it quicker without sacrificing the uh, integrity of the program. I remember when you spoke to our member, like to the immigration bar back in 2016, you spoke about kind of smarter processing, just ways of finding new efficiencies in the process. And I, I think that this is what you're speaking to is just ways of removing redundancies, taking out components of the application process that are really not necessary to establish genuineness, things like that. Um, is this what you're referencing here? Exactly. And so they know more about way more than I did about all the different processes, but their commitment was to find efficiencies and get rid of unnecessary things to speed up the process. And that's that's what they did. So that was a good outcome. Yeah. And what, so one of the other things you did on the spousal sponsorship side was abolishing permanent resident, or sorry, abolishing, abolishing conditional permanent residents for oh. sponsored spouses. And there were two conservative era changes that you left in place, which was the disjunctive test where a marriage will be a marriage of convenience if it's either not genuine or if its primary purpose was for immigration, as well as a bar on people who get people who were sponsored turning around and sponsoring someone else within five years. So I was just wondering what goes in, like what went into the decision to leave two of the changes intact and repeal conditional permanent residency? I honestly don't know. This is going yeah. back a while and I remember yeah. all those details. But I do remember we clearly did not want to put the woman at a disadvantage and we clearly wanted to, we got rid of Bill C-24 and the principle of a Canadian is a Canadian is a So yeah. the, we wanted to undo those things that the Conservatives had done. Uh, what you're saying is we didn't completely undo it, and I guess that's right, but I'm afraid I don't remember exactly why we didn't do specific things, but that was the direction we we went in. Yeah. Just for the sake of our users, I just want to clarify that that conditional permanent residence was one where if a sponsored person left a relationship within a prescribed period of time that they could subsequently lose their permanent resident status. And I would have to say, as someone who does a lot of work in the anti-violence sector, that that was one of the single most important reforms in this area that I've seen. It had such a negative impact on people who were afraid to leave abusive relationships for fear that they would then lose their uh, their permanent resident status, and um, uh, this does help 
remind me of why I was so sad when um, Mr. McCallum was removed or moved on from this position as, as quickly as he was, because we did see so many positive changes happen in such a short period of time. And this was definitely one of them. It had such a great impact. And the, the anti-violence sector had been lobbying so strongly since the condition came into place. Um, and finally, it got it got removed. Yeah, I was ambivalent on conditional permanent residency until I had my first consultation with someone who said, well, I want, you know, our relationship is ending. So it was two years. If a couple broke up within two years after immigrating, they were uh, they lost their permanent residency. And the this couple was in my office and they said, so we know there's an exemption where there's abuse and I want my sponsor I want the person that I sponsored to be able to stay. How hard do I have to hit them in order for me to be able to stay? And I thought, you know what? This law has problems. <laughs> if this is the result of, uh, of how this is going down in practice. There are problems here. Yeah, well, clearly we wanted to get rid of that. So yeah. I'm glad you that we did. But wow. I would also, I think my successor, Ahmed Hussein, also did a good job. So I think his yeah. principal beliefs are very much in the same uh, direction as mine and same with the current minister, Marco Mendicino. Yeah. So I I think even though I left, he had a continuity in terms of the principles that we were trying to uphold. Yeah. And on Bill C-24, um, it's it's funny because it's almost been it's been five years and it was only in uh, preparing for this that I had to turn my mind back to, I guess, what another one of the 2015 slogans was, which was a Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian. And I think that was one of your first actions was to repeal the revocation of citizenship for certain dual nationals. Was that something you knew right away was going to be a priority? Yes. And that is something we wanted to do. And that was an election slogan. And we were determined to do it. Yeah. And so we did it. Now, you know, in terms of things I'm proud of doing, I would put the Syrian refugees and the two years to one year for spouses higher up. Because when you're a majority government, it's not that hard to repeal something that your predecessor did. <laughs> yeah, the right thing to do. But it was very easy. We just said, no, that won't. That's no more. It was definitely the right thing to do. But it wasn't very difficult. When you're a majority government, you can do that quite easily. Yeah. I have a question for you that dates back to before um, the government changed over, because I remember... Um, at this time, there was a lot of meetings between the immigration bar and the critics because we weren't able to get meetings with the government. Um, so we were approaching the critics and saying, look, um, we're really opposed to this. And what are you doing? How are you challenging this? And I remember at some point getting the feedback, you know, look, we're not even trying. We're just trying to get elected. And then we're just going to reverse things. Um, I'm just wondering if this is sort of how you recall that um, in terms of the immigration portfolio, that it was like um, that that it's 
at a certain point, the focus shifted from actually critiquing the policies that were putting into place and instead just focusing on re-election, knowing that you were just going to knock them down one at a time, the ones that were the most offensive. I would say we did both. I mean, I don't know if I was one of the critics you met, but uh, I certainly criticized the things that the government did that we uh, didn't agree with, uh, like the Canadian is a Canadian is a Canadian and many other things. The treatment of Muslims, I remember, was a big issue, which we were strongly opposed to. Mm. So we never stopped criticizing for that them for that. But whether we actually believe they might change their minds, probably not. Mm. So therefore, it was also important for us to win the election. But I think it was both. We mm. we criticized them and we hoped they would reverse themselves. But failing that, we wanted to win the election and then we could reverse those things ourselves. Yeah. I think part of what is buried in this question is whether or not you felt that there was an overall erosion of the kind of democratic process during those final stages of the last government where there was kind of a shortage of actual you know collaboration discussion in parliament because that was certainly the sense that, that I had as an advocate from the outside, that there wasn't a lot of debate going on, there wasn't a lot of, you know, some of those parliamentary committees that normally are sitting and calling witnesses, that a lot of that was just sort of gone in the way that, that we're kind of accustomed to seeing that in, in the current, like in, a, in the Liberal government. Um, I'm not sure about that. I think if no? I were conservative, I could criticize the Liberal government for some of the committees that it runs. Um, I, I think maybe by the end of the time, we had become more focused on the election because it was clear that they weren't going to change too much in terms of the fundamental things that we oppose. And so we, we still pushed them to change those things, but without hope that they would. Um, but we were, as time went by, more and more keen on actually just winning the election. Mm. But I'm not aware that personal relations deteriorated. I still got along reasonably well with many conservative members of parliament and NDP. And uh, so I'm not really aware that collegiality suffered. Maybe in the case of particular individuals, particular ministers, that would certainly have been the case. But, you know, I, I was in Parliament many years and I don't recall a big drop in collegiality in this period. Yeah. When you uh, mentioned the previous government's treatment of Muslims, are you referring to the niqab ban at citizenship ceremonies or something else as well? Yeah. And also there was some language in the Citizenship Act. I don't remember exactly. It's barbaric cultural practices. Yeah. Is that the one? Yes. All of that, mm -hmm. which we took as being anti-Muslim in a very unacceptable way. For sure. Yeah. So I remember pushing Chris Alexander in question period on that issue of so-called barbaric cultural practices and trying to get 
the wording to be changed unsuccessfully. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think one of the wet like, under, I think it was in a bill sponsored by the Senate that um, formally removed the short form of the title of the bill to get rid yes. of the reference to the uh, barbaric cultural practices. Um, now, what about in terms of things that uh, maybe you wish you had been able to accomplish but hadn't? One of them, which I had emailed you about, was uh, when you were well in the when you were um, the immigration critic, you sponsored a bill to centralize the hiring of live-in caregivers. That's an accurate summary of the bill in one sentence. And I think it was also in the minister mandate letter. Um, and ultimately, over the course of both your mandate as well as the first term of uh, the Trudeau government, that wasn't done. So was there? I was just wondering uh, what what caused the change in approach to caregivers? Some of these things are so long ago, I don't fully remember, <laughs> to be honest. Um, yeah. I do remember spending a lot of time on caregivers and huh. going to speak to people about caregivers and trying to make sure, trying to improve the conditions under which caregivers lived and trying to respond to cases of abuse. Um, because there have been, you know, serious negative issues in this area in the past. But I honestly don't remember that yeah. specific issue that you're referring to. Yeah. Sorry about that. The caregiver portfolio is sort of been my raison d'etre for, for many years. And um, I have been a very... Um, sharp critic of of most of the policy reform in this area and i have to say that some of the proposals that you made under this title were some of the ones that i was the most encouraged by um and oh. i for one was quite sad to see that those didn't come to fruition because i i personally am not happy with the program that they have introduced in its place and i really I really was encouraged by your quite common sense approach to it. It seemed very reasonable and I was very excited to see how that played out. Um, so anyways, for what that's worth. Um, I'm, I thought, I'm sorry it didn't happen. I am sorry too. Um, but yeah, I thought that it really, I mean, for all the rhetoric around, you know, trying to focus on the rights and the vulnerabilities of those workers, I don't feel that any policy that's been, that has actually been introduced for caregivers has actually done that. And I had quite a bit of hope about what you were discussing in the early days of your, um, of your uh, time as, as minister. Okay. It seems like they're slowly trying to, uh, it seems like it is at least being reduced in size or wound down. Because when you look at the immigration levels plan for caregivers, the numbers are steady, but they keep adding new programs into what they're including. They're not the adding new programs. They're canceling. No, I mean like they're putting when they 14,000 caregivers plus agricultural pilot plus northern pilot. So there's more and more programs that are being added to the same row. 
Oh, you're saying out. if oh. yeah, I think there's. It seems like the numbers are planning to go. They're like are being reduced. And one of the trends actually of the first liberal government was a big decline in the number of um, Filipino people becoming permanent residents, which I think is tied to a decline in the number of caregivers uh, that are being admitted. Um, and so another, uh, just uh, moving on a bit, another question that I'm sure you get asked all the time, or I, you got asked all the time as immigration minister, is can you help with my specific file? Yeah. Is that something that you do as minister? Is it something your office does? Absolutely, yes. People at least try. <laughs> yeah. Any day in question period. I'd have people come maybe six or seven every day come over to me with notes or letters asking for help in one particular immigration case. And yeah. sometimes it would be liberals, other times it would be members of other parties. And so, yes, now it's a, pro it's a challenge for a minister because you'll get pressures from your own members of parliament and from, from your own colleagues and from members from other parties to give special treatment and let somebody in for any number of reasons. And so it's always a balancing act. And mm -hmm. my approach was not to let too many in, not to bend the rules too much. And so I would have to explain or my staff would have to explain to members of parliament, whether they were liberals or other parties that, no, we couldn't do this. They had to do X, Y, and Z. And there wasn't really a reason to do that. But different ministers have different approaches. And um, it's a perennial challenge of being the minister of immigration. Yeah. Was it... Um... Is it something, as you know, like over the course of your 15 years as a member of parliament or around that, uh, that you did notice then differences in individual ministers as they on how they approach this? Yeah, I would say different ministers had different approaches in this area. Some were more sticking by the rules and others were more bending to the will of MPs. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's. I remember Jason uh, Kenny was minister. My riding, Markham or Markham Unionville or Markham Thornhill, it had different names. Yeah. It was always Markham, is like very, very multicultural and many uh -huh. new Canadians. But I hardly ever went to the immigration minister for help. But I remember I did once. It was a very desperate case of some sort. And I went to Jason Kenny, who was then the minister. And he said, okay, you hardly ever come to me. I'll let you have this one. Yeah. So I, I am still grateful to him for that. And, you know, it can be quite important. Um, yeah. In some cases where I've thought it was really important, I have helped people. But I didn't want to make it a blanket thing because... You know, you don't want to undermine the, the people in the department who are trying to do the job as best as they can. And if they 
are following rules and you have overrides all the time for political reasons, then that's not good. But there will be some cases, probably not very many, where it should happen. And I used to do that. And but I would say it's fair to say that some ministers of different parties have different approaches in this area. It's not it's not a black and white right and wrong issue. It's a question of approach and a question of degree. Yeah. It's one of those things it's easy to forget that ministers are still like they still have their own constituency office. And as a representative for your constituency, especially in a very multi-ethnic community, um, I can imagine that even just even taking out of the equation other members of parliament coming to you, just even you know, dealing with the demands from your own constituents must be uh pretty astonishing. I, I know that there are, there are certain MPs in Vancouver who regularly contact me and ask for assistance with their own constituents. And several of them have said to me, especially in very multi-ethnic communities, that they feel like their constituency offices are like um, little legal clinics where their, um, their constituency assistants are basically just all day long handling um, concerns by newcomers or, um, you know, refugee claimants with really dire situations. And that's all they do all day long is well, trying to help people with, with difficult situations. Certainly the case in my office. Yeah. A very high proportion of all of our work had to do with that kind of issue. But that's because of the nature of Markham. If you exactly. go to a rural riding where there's hardly any immigrants, and there's fewer of those these days, but it'll be much less intensive on immigration issues. But For certainly sure. where that was the one issue. Sometimes you see uh, in immigration files, MPs writing letters of support for why someone should get a TRV or be able to stay in Canada on humanitarian and compassionate reasons. Is that something that as minister you had to say, look, I, I can't write a letter to my own department saying in a TRV application, this is why you should grant it? You... No, I certainly could not do that as minister. I could do that as a member of parliament, but as a minister, I could not write such a letter. So you would, when, so were you, so as minister, you would just on MP letterhead have a letter recommending someone or, and just the IRCC officer would hopefully view that? I have found out a way to do it, but I can't, it would be a conflict of interest if yeah. I recommend something on which I was the decision maker. Okay. So I, I somehow found a way to help people without getting into that conflict. I don't remember exactly how I did it, but I survived. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully my constituents did too. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Challenging. And the last uh, substantive question that I think I have anyway is when it comes to setting immigration levels, what goes into that? Like, is it you just sit in a room of senior IRCC officials and hammer out the targets for the year? Is it more bottom up or? I would say it depends partly on the overall direction that 
the government or the minister or the prime minister wants to go. Yeah. And in case, I always wanted more uh, because I think immigration is good for the country. Yeah. And so I was always in favor of a higher number. Um, and then partly then that gets to negotiate. Sorry. Negotiating with various people on that and then discussing with officials the mix, you know, how many will be family class, how many will be uh, economic refugees and so on. Um, so I think it goes at, at several levels. Um, and then out of that comes the product. Yeah. No, it's... Uh... But generally, I mean, one of the good things about Canada is that we don't have any anti-immigration party. Now, they're the People's Party, but... Yeah, it's just... just But not really a party. Um, Yeah, I was going to say, I'm glad it was from you. (laughs) Parties that have at least one member of parliament don't have any anti-immigration party. And so we're lucky. And I think <laughs> there's no party that I know of calling for a drop in immigration. I mean, I, I noticed that recently when the government came up with a number over 400,000 for immigration target for next year, compensating in part for the drop in, in uh, numbers this year because of the pandemic, I, I heard the conservative critic and she didn't say that number is too big. Cut the various other what sounded like reasonable um, criticisms or comments, but she didn't say drop the number. So I think we're lucky in this country that we don't have a conservative party or an NDP or any other party saying, no, we don't want immigrants. I think there's a general consensus in this country that, you know, a big country with not that many people. We have an aging population and immigrants add a lot in all sorts of ways to Canada. And um, I think one of the ways you just look around the world and you will see many countries where immigration is a big issue. And there's at least one party that's very much down on immigration in general or certain kinds of immigration. And so I think we're fortunate. So the numbers exercise in Canada you know, we don't have huge fights about it. Yeah. Uh, and we're lucky. And so, you know, part of the job of the government, I think, and we talked about this earlier with the refugees, that we want refugees and immigrants to continue to come into Canada in big numbers. So in order to make that happen, we have to convince Canadians, the voters, that this is good for them, good for Canada. And so that's why it's important that um, we got Canadians to accept, at least the great majority of Canadians, that it was good to have these Syrian refugees and good to have immigrants. And I think one of the parts of the country where that has changed a lot is Atlantic Canada, the Maritimes. Because in the Maritimes, they used to not be so keen on people from away and not very welcoming always to newcomers. And now, especially in Nova Scotia and, well, I'm not so sure about Newfoundland, but the three maritime provinces, 
are all overtly and politically welcoming to immigrants, and they were very positive on the Syrian refugees. And I think that's partly because they see the problem. They have the most serious problem of any of us in terms of an aging population. So they see their schools having to close. They see, you know, uh, the population aging with all of the consequences. So I think in Atlanta, Canada in particular, people have come to the conclusion that they need immigrants. And so that's good. And I think that's something that governments should uh, nurture. I'm I'm curious whether or not you think that there has been an evolution in an understanding as to whether or not refugees have value, not just because we are being compassionate, but also because they become assets, like that they're contributing, that they actually become robust members of our society, because um, in some ways I feel like historically it's been more set up that there is the economic side of immigration, and then there's the compassionate side of immigration. And I feel like that dichotomous setup is not quite accurate in the sense that I think that what you're describing here about the incorporation of the refugee community into the Maritimes is more of an understanding that it's it's far less stark than that, that, you know, that refugees aren't just like, it's not just a handout, it's something different than that. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's right, and I think that, um, well, as in many things, there's more than one motive. We want to help refugees because they need our help. But we also believe that refugees, once they get here, once they get established, will make contributions to Canada. And Mm -hmm. I think that is largely true, not 100%, but largely true. Uh, But I think many refugees do provide, there's a lot of evidence to provide strong economic benefits to Canada. One of the things I'm involved with since leaving uh, politics is this group called Talent Beyond Boundaries, which is, or Beyond Borders, which is trying to get refugees accepted as part of a labor market stream. And I had never even thought about that when I was immigration minister. But it's a great idea. There are a lot of refugees out there who are highly skilled, sitting in places where they can't use those skills. And there are a lot of employers in Canada who can't find workers who need those people. So it's a win-win situation if you can put it together. And the government has recently agreed to have five, a commitment to 500 such people. And so there's a clear case where you're, yes, you're refugees, but you're coming in on an economic stream. And we haven't had that many come yet, but among those who have, the employers have loved them. They're doing great work. And so I'm hoping that we can build on this. And that would be sort of an area where you integrate the economic with the refugee in an explicit way. And I think what I'm saying is not necessarily that, that, you know that that they that they would necessarily come in as anything you, you know as economic immigrants but just that um i'm not sure that they're always well served by this very paternalistic approach i don't think that that's the best approach just in terms of integration where i think um the the more 
um, substantive type of in integration, I think, works best if just as a society we understand that the contributions um, are there as well as the, you know, that this is a handout kind of an approach. But but right. what you said just a minute ago, I think, perhaps is a good segue into a final question is that um, I'm interested in knowing, like having spent so much of your career in the political arena, what are some of the greatest challenges in in sort of sort of segueing into an, a, a pu like a, a public a private sector kind of a, a life? Well, I've certainly had a num done a number of things in the course of my life. I've been a professor for longer than I was a politician. I was a banker, chief economist at Royal Bank for a number of years. And then I was a member of parliament, a minister, an ambassador. So I've done lots of things. But now I'm, uh, I guess you could say semi-retired, but I'm also acting as a consultant with a law firm mm. and so keeping myself reasonably busy and but also we have uh, I'm spending more time with my family partly because mm -hmm. of the pandemic <laughs> because Everybody. we have three young grandchildren uh, um, so yeah I'm having a, a good time uh, in a sort of quieter way than it used to be partly but all of us are somewhat confined these days. Yeah. No, it, uh, it's... And it's not getting better. It seems to be getting worse. That's for sure. The pandemic. Yeah, British Columbia, we seem to... I don't want to say skate through the first wave because there were quite a number of people who passed, but the second wave seems like for British Columbia that it's going to be much more severe than the first are you in British? You're calling from British Columbia? Yeah, we're both in uh, Vancouver. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, I don't know. British Columbia is not doing as badly as Manitoba. Yeah. And I think. Or Alberta. Same. Yeah. And I think you're about the same per capita as Ontario. Uh -huh. It's a problem everywhere, but I just hope we can somehow get a lid on it. Yeah, no, and it's been interesting watching the uh, the government have to respond. I think the for the current immigration minister will definitely be remembered as the minister who had to deal with COVID. So like, yeah. it's uh, defined his like legacy before he, uh, uh, you know, even well, if he, even if he didn't expect it. Hopefully, it won't be his full legacy. I'm. Yeah. It's very, it's impossible to predict, but I'm hoping it will come to the end while he's still the minister, and then he'll have some other legacy. Yes, Dean. Yeah. No, um, definitely. Well, I think that's it for now. Uh, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, you're most welcome. It was very, very it. insightful. We really appreciate your time and... Uh, uh, you're sharing some of your highlights of your very distinguished career. Well, thank you. I enjoyed your questions and uh, good to meet you all on Skype. Meet you yeah. both. Yes. Okay. Bye. Bye. Take care.